Welcome to The Just Pod, a podcast by the Criminal Justice Section of the ABA, the unified voice of criminal justice. Welcome to this episode of The Just Pod. Today we have two guests joining us who have been with us here before, Jody Westby and Matthew Esworthy. Jody Westby is the CEO of Global Cyber Risk LLC and an adjunct professor for the Georgia Institute of Technology and School of Computer Science. And Matthew Esworthy is a partner with Bowie and Jensen. And both Jody and Matthew are co-chairs of the ABA Criminal Justice Section's Cybercrime Committee. So welcome to both of you. Thank you for joining us again. Thank you. Jody and Matt are here today to discuss the need for uniform cybercrime laws, both domestically and globally. So let's start with Matt. Matt, why is there more urgency to establish these more uniform laws now? Well, first of all, thank you for having us. And I would say anybody that's been paying attention over the past 18 months of the pandemic, which was a particularly difficult period of time in general, was also an incredibly difficult time with respect to ransomware attacks and other forms of attack, both on big and small organizations. I can tell you that law firms still remain a large target. And since we're speaking to the ABA audience, solo firms in the Baltimore area, I can tell you just this past couple of weeks, at least two or three solo firms were hit by ransomware attacks. So it doesn't matter how big or small you are, what type of practice you have, eventually you will be a target. But there were also, at many of these attacks were sophisticated, some involving nation states in some fashion, and they were multi-pronged. Really, this period of 18 months has highlighted the lack of preparedness of organizations and the gaps in cybercrime legal framework that would work to make this really the perfect crime. It's very difficult to pursue these bad actors and successfully prosecute these cases. Okay, so you mentioned gaps. Now, Jody, what are these gaps that we're referring to? Well, when we have cybercrime laws, there's two parts of them. One is the substantive provisions, what's prohibited, what's considered a cybercrime. And the other is the procedural laws that govern how you investigate the cybercrimes. And we have an inconsistent legal framework, both within the United States, our 50 state laws are not at all consistent for cybercrime laws, procedurally or substantively, and globally, they also are not. So it's caused this lack of consistency across the globe and within the US for cybercrime laws creates a lot of problems when you start investigating a cybercrime. So when you have an investigation and you need to get law enforcement assistance, then you you either have to investigate it yourself, which means you have to follow the path of the attack and you have to go from hop to hop to hop where the packets went and get data. And you have to request that from every point that it goes through. So it's a very difficult process when you don't have a consistent 
laws because some people may refuse to investigate saying this isn't a crime here, uh, dual criminality problems. And then you also have a big problem with the lack of skilled law enforcement to conduct the cybercrime investigations across the country. So the two biggest gaps are inconsistent legal framework and an inadequate number of trained law enforcement to investigate cybercrimes. And so this is very problematic because when you are trying to investigate an incident and you're trying to go from point to point to gather the information, then you have to have cooperation to do that. And it's more effective to use law enforcement's assistance because they can go to the carriers and get orders quickly to provide the information you need to go to the next hop. If you're a civilian doing it, you have to file a lawsuit and get a subpoena issued under that civil lawsuit to go to the providers to get the data from point to point. So the gaps are huge in that they impede the investigation of cybercrimes because of the lack of consistency in substantive provisions, the lack of consistency in how procedural provisions of how to do it, and just the lack of the skilled law enforcement to, even if they were consistent, to go out and, and assist in these investigations. And as Matt said, the cybercrimes are running rampant. It's our second layer pandemic going on. And they're attacking the U.S. more than other countries. And that's obviously in part because we have most of the content here. And so the gaps in the cybercrime laws are impacting people and companies more than they realize. A lot of the victims that get hit with identity theft, the small business, the individuals that have to fight against the cybercrime that they were a victim of, that's in large part because we never catch anyone and we never catch anyone in large part because of these gaps in the cybercrime laws. And building on what Jody has just discussed, I can tell you having personal experiences where I'm reaching out on behalf of clients who have experienced significant losses in excess of a million dollars and being told by local and federal law enforcement that while they certainly are very sorry that occurred, that just the monetary value of the fraud isn't enough to merit their involvement. And you get stuck in this situation where the feds are pointing you to the local authorities and the local authorities are pointing you to the feds. And in the meantime, your clients really don't have an investigatory group to help them or a law enforcement group that can help them. And as Jody mentioned, then it falls upon the individual to file suit. But you know, with many of the courts going into a semi-shutdown mode as a result of COVID, that was also difficult to mm -hmm. jump into court and get quick relief with the dockets incredibly backlogged. So I think this pandemic has highlighted the very serious problem that already existed. Yeah, that's right. And you know, don't think just because you can meet the $75,000 limit for federal jurisdiction, that's enough to engage the FBI. They're threshold is way above that just because they have to take on the biggest and worst cases. It's just like going into emergency room, they triage and the worst get the attention first. Right. And so when you're forced to go to your state or local law enforcement, then guess what law they look to? They look to their state law. They don't look to the federal law necessarily. They go to their state law. 
And so then, you know, you have an immediate problem between state and federal before you even think about an international investigation. And because of the nature of packet switching, many communications are international. They just go through a foreign jurisdiction before they get to you, even if you're emailing your neighbor across the street. And so it's a big problem. Yep. And I think at the local level, you hear prosecutors say that they're concerned whether they even have jurisdiction over this matter. And to no fault of their own, they're focused on what they view as the run-of-the-mill criminal cases and the speedy trial rights that they're trying to not violate under these COVID protocols and get people through. So they're not going to take a flyer on a cyber crime matter that they're not familiar with, they don't know how to prosecute, and they're not sure they have jurisdiction to even do it. Let's talk more about these investigations Clearly, these gaps are really problematic. Let's talk about this a little bit more, if you could elaborate and help our listeners further understand. Can you give us some examples of how these gaps impact investigations? Yeah, I think for anybody that practices criminal law is familiar with this concept of the sophisticated criminals understanding the laws and how to operate and weave within them. And this is no different. The cyber criminals, the people that are exploiting these laws, they understand where they can operate and where they can't. They understand the laws sometimes better, most of the time better than the victims or the law enforcement agencies charged with going after them. They will target countries or use countries as a vehicle that have more relaxed laws or relaxed law enforcement. And You know, they're also aware of who's on the ball in terms of pursuing or investigating and who's not. You know, with cyber, the difficulty is it rarely exists in one place or one jurisdiction. And it crosses many borders, both state borders, national borders, you know, it goes international quite often. And you need the assistance of people in other jurisdictions or other countries. It's a really cumbersome process that can take weeks. And there are, you know, tools such as MLATs and letters rogatory that lawyers who are familiar with this would use. But at the end of the day, the way things typically get done, and Jody and I have been talking about this a very long time, and I think it's still the case, it's based on relationships, you know, with people in other countries or jurisdictions. That's how you're effective because of this gap in the law, because of the differences and inequities between the countries. And I know, Jody, you could probably speak more to this. Well, you know, it's a really big problem because while we talk about cyberspace has no borders, law enforcement, prosecutors, government officials, diplomats do. And they literally have to stop at a country's borders and ask for assistance from another country. And that usually takes the form of a formal process of either letter purgatory or mutual legal assistance treaty. And that takes a long time. So what's happening is people are leveraging their relationships around the world and calling other investigators they know and saying, hey, can you help me get this data and applying for the paperwork, but go through your process and get the data for me. So it's really ridiculous when you think about this has been operating this way. The internet, you know, is almost 25 years old. And so it's like, we have missed a major piece of what is problematic and how it's being used for bad purposes. And in large part, it's because we can't catch these criminals. 
we can't catch them. And the reason we don't catch them is it's very difficult to attribute who did it. And it's very difficult for that attribution due to this inconsistent cybercrime framework and these gaps in that hinder investigations. So I think it's one of the most critical issues. When you look at the cost of cybercrime, which is now with a T, you know, trillions every year globally, that it's like, really? Why haven't we been focused on this? And so the impact of the gaps on the investigations is just enormous on private sector companies, on individuals, even on, you know, governments are getting attacked all the time. And so this is a problem that I think is as urgent as nearly anything that we're dealing with right now. Yeah, thank you. Well, you've certainly done a good job of helping us understand the urgency and the high level of threat that we're all facing here. Let's talk about progress now to help us understand where there is movement and perhaps where there could be continued movement and more involvement and where supporters could contribute. What progress, if any, has been made toward more uniformity in this space? Well, there's been some. So we have the Budapest Convention, which is known as the Council of Europe Convention on Cybercrime. And that has been around for nearly 20 years, close to that. And there's only 65 states that have ratified it, 65 countries. And that's not very many when you think that there's oh, 250 countries and territories connected to the internet. So when you're trying to do a global investigation and you only have 65 agreeing on substantive and procedural provisions, then that is a start, but it's only, you know, maybe even a quarter of where we need to be. My ABA Privacy and Computer Crime Committee on the Science and Technology Law Section, which I've chaired for a long time, we did a toolkit for cybercrime legislation. And we worked with the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union at the UN, and had a global group of participants, multidisciplinary group of participants, not all lawyers, but technical people, government people, industry, academia, scientists. And we developed this toolkit for cybercrime legislation that was actually we took the Budapest Convention and we took other major cybercrime laws and we came up with sample legislative language that countries could use for drafting a cybercrime law. It's one thing to say we have a convention, but it's another very different thing to turn it into a law, to turn it into legislative language. That's hard work. And we did that work. And so that was done in like 2010 was the other version. It still sits out there. And then there is now other by different groups in the United Nations. One thing we had also started in the Privacy and Computer Crime Committee was we started developing a matrix of the key cybercrime laws and then kind of started checking which countries had those different provisions. And I think that has been picked up and carried forward. So there are some people in the United Nations that are trying to focus on this. There's also been domestically, the Uniform Law Commission pulled together a study committee that has been looking at whether states in the U.S. need a uniform cybercrime law. 
I've been an observer from the American Bar Association to that group. And so that is at least looking on bringing some uniformity from the state level, hopefully aligning it more with our federal level. So there are all of those things that have taken place. There have also been some efforts at the United Nations to get countries to agree to cyber norms. And the cyber norms are basically countries agreeing to how they would behave using cyberspace. I think this has been a waste of time because when countries decide they want to take an act or do an an action in cyberspace, they're going to do what's politically expedient for them. We've seen Russia do that time and time again. Russia, who has been the one out front proposing these norms, has been the first to violate them. And they can do that because they're voluntary. And we don't have a legal framework that countries can look to and say, you violated international law. Now, I don't even just mean the laws of armed conflict, which is international law, but having a legal framework that governs how countries will use the internet and have that as a legal framework that's not within the context of war, but within the context of everyday living. We could certainly develop such an international framework legally within the UN and have countries agree to that, but we're far away from that. And until we have any kind of more uniformity in this space, you're going to have quite a checkerboard of different actions and nothing really pulling the threads all to one direction. We have other issues now too pushing the limit, which is like geofence warrants, Matt, and I've done a program on geofence warrants and that's where people are getting geolocation data. Um, You know, one example is looking at January 6th, asking for who all was at the Capitol and picking up geolocation data from devices. And so those kinds of things are the kinds of progress that we need to make looking at the new issues as well as looking at just what are the countries doing. But it's really got to have much more international push. Jody and I had talked about this and we've talked about this in past occasions. There's also this tension between personal privacy, privacy rights and security and that balance between the two, many would say they're one and the same or they're related. And then there are others that view them very differently that, you know, the more secure you are, the less privacy or personal rights, or you you may have to give some of those up. And I think that's potentially or quite possibly another reason for the difficulty we're seeing in everybody coming together in terms of uniformity, in terms of the approach. I think that's certainly an underlying current with many of these things. Yeah, thank you. I find myself wondering, let's go back to talking about the impact on companies. Where does this leave companies? How are they dealing with this? Right. I think the growing, and I don't want to say it's a growing trend, it's been the trend for quite a while, is many companies obviously have taken notice of this and they've put in place the recommended measures and companies like Jody's have advise these companies how to better protect themselves and harden their assets. But, you know, a lot of this has also been driven into the insurance realm or the insurance industry where companies are obtaining cyber insurance to insure against this, understanding that it isn't if, but it's when. And so they need that coverage. The problem with that, that at least I've seen is you have to be very careful with respect to the policy you have and reviewing it and making sure 
that that policy covers the latest, greatest scam and scheme that's out there. I'll give you an example. You know, everybody's focused on the ransomware attacks. So many of these cyber insurance policies will have a provision for ransomware attacks. But a lot of people are getting hit with a low-tech phishing email hit where, you know, they're being told to wire money. Uh, The person emailing them isn't the person they believe it is. And it's a bad wire account info and the money goes off into the ether and it's gone. And that insurance policy doesn't necessarily cover that kind of fraud. So what many people do or should do is probably at least enlist the help of counsel or a broker to advise them as to what they are buying, because you certainly don't want to pay for cyber insurance that doesn't really protect you against these more common threat vectors and what's really going on out there. And I think it's the insurance piece is a big piece and also leaning on companies like Jody's company to assist them, not just when they're hit, but advising them how to prevent or better protect themselves in the event of an attack. And Jody, what are you seeing with respect to that? Well, you know, I have to say, I put a lot of the current problem at the feet of the insurance companies because they have not built the actuarial tables they needed to start building back in 2003 when the first cyber coverage emerged. And they just wanted market share. So they got their market share, but their underwriting process initially was nothing. You want a policy? Okay, here, here's a policy. And then they would finally say, oh, well, we need to make sure they have a firewall on. Oh, well, now we need to make sure they have you know, incident response. Oh, now we need to make sure they have multi-factor authentication. Pretty soon they're going to get up to where their underwriting process encompasses an enterprise security program, which is what they should have looked at from the beginning. But what has happened is companies have used insurance as a hedge and they've said, oh, okay, well, so we can spend $75,000 on a cyber policy. And that's a whole lot less than the $250,000 or $300,000 my CISO says we need to spend. And if something happens, I've got insurance to cover it. And unfortunately, then they have an attack and then the insurance company ends up paying for some of the remediation activities they should have done as part of their program. So it's been backwards. And now I think with the insurance rates rising and the insurance companies bleeding because their underwriting is now they're realizing wasn't what it needed to be, that that's gonna cause a course correction. And companies are going to start spending the money they have to spend. I think insurance companies are going to stop paying for some of the remediation activities. And we're going to see a bit more leveling out where companies have to start spending the money they should have been spending and having enterprise programs aligned with best practices and standards and underwriters who underwrite according to best practices and standards. And then maybe we'll get a little better. But in the meantime, right now, the companies are in a very weak spot. Yeah. And I will say, you know, Jody, you deal with, you know, the Fortune 100 and mega companies. And my experience has also been with these smaller solo firms or mom and pop firms where their broker or the cyber insurance carrier will give them the checklist that you described earlier of things they need to do in order to obtain cyber insurance. And some of the mistakes I've seen would be, for example, saying you've done it when you haven't, or creating an incident response plan or policies that are maybe great for Verizon, but not great for the law firm of Esworthy and Esworthy, Mm -hmm. Um, and then creating these policies and not following them, and then 
you know, when it comes time to seek the help of the insurance carrier, they learn that cutting corners or fudging really didn't help them at all. But I also have seen a lot in terms of what's not covered and what is covered, creating major problems for small firms and businesses and people not getting great advice on the initial purchase of the policy and what it really covers. And then they're left holding the bag. So uh, I agree. Okay. So Jody and Matt, as I mentioned in our introductions, you serve as the co-chairs for our cybercrime committee. Jody, you touched on some other efforts at the ABA. Can you also tell us what our ABA CJS committee has been doing and if there's anything else at the ABA that's been done to help address these problems? Well, I'll just touch on how we're working together across sections. So the Privacy and Computer Crime Committee I mentioned in the Science and Technology Law section, I chair that and we're collaborating with this committee, the Criminal Justice Cybercrime Committee. The Privacy and Computer Crime wrote a book called International Guide to Cybersecurity um, many years ago, 2004 or something like that. And we're in the process of a rewrite, but obviously that will cover some aspects of cybercrime. And so we're working collaboratively on that and would welcome participation if anyone's interested. But that is something that we think we can help bring out the global aspect of it and bring out some of the issues that are very important in cybersecurity that's facilitating cybercrime. So that's something that Matt and I are working together on through these two sections to try to make a change here and and influence the environment. That's wonderful. Thank you. So Jody and Matt, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us on this topic and highlighting the current threat that we're facing. Now, before we close, why don't each of you just take a few moments and share some closing thoughts with our listeners on this issue? And let's start with Matt. Okay. Well, I'm actually going to, instead of the gloom and doom, I'm going to try to leave the listeners with some positive things they can do. And I'm sure Jody would echo this. In fact, heck, I, Jody and I have known each other for a long time, and I think I learned these things from Jody. What can you do? What can you do? We're going to throw up our hands and say the bad actors have won and there's nothing we can do. Well, there's always things we can do as lawyers, as small business owners, as employees, as members of the community. Number one, practice basic cyber hygiene. What does that mean? That means frequently changing passwords, making them more complicated than password, making sure your security software is up to date, making sure that you're not going to sketchy sites that would put malware on your machine. You know, basic things that you could do to increase your odds of not falling prey to the bad guys. What else could you do as a law firm, either large or small? You could look into frequently training your employees, staying in touch, staying aware of what the more recent attack vectors are that these bad actors are trying, and let your employees know not to click on that email that the latest scam is more low-tech than high-tech, but staying engaged and involved and trying to stay abreast of what's really going on in that. And then I would also say you know, maybe get a little more proactive and reach out to your legislators and at the federal and state level. As lawyers, you know, we are all connected to those people a little bit more than 
people in the community. And uh, I think, you know, we should apply pressure to them and encourage them to look at the laws and to update them and to seek uniformity in the law. So with uniformity comes ease of enforcement and continuity. So those would be the things I would say as just parting thoughts. Those are great. I would just add, no matter if you're a large or small company, you should look at what is our cybersecurity program and it, are we aligned with best practices and standards? It's not enough to just go get a pen test every year. It's not enough to just do a vulnerability scan. There's a reason these programs have 100 or so controls. If you're a small company, you don't have to have all of them, but at least look at the ones. And if you say, we're not going to do that, then say you're not going to do it and market and say, no, why? And go on, but at least look at your cyber program because it's all those gaps that people miss, those controls that let the bad guys in. Matt made a great point on training because now with the pandemic, one of the great things out of that is there's all kinds of really good training available by video. And so not just security awareness training. If you have IT people and smaller mid-sized businesses can't afford to hire security people too, send those IT people to some online courses and get them some credentials, let them learn. Also leverage vendors, small and mid-sized businesses can really leverage security vendors and improve their environment just by outsourcing some of it to people that spend 24 seven focusing on security. So I think those are some of the positive steps companies can take that'll pay off in the end. Yeah, and Jody, I'm gonna add one thing to your comments that I also learned from you is do not wait to seek out these capable vendors in your community that you will be relying on, don't wait until you are in the midst of a cyber attack. (laughs) Do it now, be proactive, develop that team of trusted advisors now. So if and when something does happen, you have them. You don't want to try to find the Jody Westby's when you're in the middle of a malware attack or a ransomware. Same with you. You don't want to go find your outside counsel that knows how to handle a cyber incident when you're calling up your government contractor lawyer or something. Right. Heck, your computer probably won't even work to go find it. Well, thanks so much, Emily. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. Well, listeners, once again, this is Jody Westby, CEO of Global Cyber Risk and Adjunct Professor of the Georgia Institute of Technology School of Computer Science, and Matthew Esworthy, partner with Bowie and Jensen. So thank you again. And thank you to our listeners for joining us on this episode of The Just Pod. 